When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and my good friend, Danny Adeljabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chilling, What's man. up, brother? As per usual. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. I do have some unfortunate news, though. What? So it seems that Joe, the U.S. pigeon, racing pigeon, has been sentenced to death Who? Wait. by the oh. Australian government. So, you got to run that back by me. There's a pigeon named Joe that's being sentenced to death? Joe, the U.S. racing pigeon, has been sentenced to death. So, what happened is that a... I like birds. I'm a big fan of birds. I like to go to the park and watch birds. I, I went to go see the, the mandarin duck when it made right. its way to California. I remember that? I made that its way, in... excuse me, to Central Park, and mm-hmm. I spotted it and was amazed and took many pictures. So right. um, there was a pigeon that pigeon. made its way from California all the way to Australia. It seems extremely unlikely, but okay. It made it you. most likely it, it jumped on some type of ship. And it jumped out. It didn't fly the whole way. It didn't fly the entire way, but it, it ended up getting in Australia. And it had a tag on it because uh-huh. it was a racing pigeon. So the Australian government was able to figure out, okay, this is from America and it's from this person. They tried, they, they tried contacting that person. Um, so they couldn't get in contact with the owner of the pigeon. So they sentenced it to death. And reason being <laughs> is that Australia... We have a lot of Australian listeners. Yeah, we do. So, um, maybe if I'm wrong, then let me know. But from my knowledge, they have very, very strict laws when it comes to bringing in foreign species, like foreign animal, like evasive species and uh, evasive, evasive uh, plant species and animal species, because they've had a long history of bringing in animals from different countries. And then, and then them just becoming, ruining the like, ecosystem. Ruining the eco- the ecosystem. Like rabbits were brought in from Europe. Right. And pigs were brought in from Europe. Uh-huh. Uh, the bullfrog was brought there. Um, or what was it? A bull? It was some frog that was brought there that destroyed a lot of crops. Um, cats there. Mm-hmm. You know, cats are not native to Australia, right. and I think it's it's said that um, that cats have killed like at least. 10 species there like they've gone they 10 mammalian species <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's they have very strict policies about okay, bringing but, in these new animals but it's a pigeon it's not like a it's not like a murdering thing well i think it's also concerns about like what diseases this pigeon can bring in 
Um, you know, let's be it, real. The reason why they want to get rid of it is because it's American. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want none of that shit in their country. But you know what? Uh, uh, for the Aussies out there that listen to our show, uh, we'd like for you to petition Scott Morrison, your primey, uh, to uh, pardon Joe the Pigeon. Please, please uh, uh, send him an email. Write him a letter. You know, do what you got to do to to get him to pardon the poor pigeon. It, it just reminds me of that. Do you watch The Simpsons, or did you watch The Simpsons when you were younger? Of course. Yeah. Do you remember the episode where Bart ends up screwing over some Australian guy, and he has to go? I think he like runs up a really uh, high uh, telephone bill, calling Australia, uh-huh. and um, the guy. He, he goes there. He has to do a public apology to the Australian prime minister and the public. And mm-hmm. when he's there, he lets out a bullfrog. And then the I, episode, at the end of the, by the end of the episode, the bullfrog gets out and starts eating all the crops. Um, and the Simpsons escape without uh, apologizing. Like, they're supposed to get, like, a big boot up their ass as punishment. <laughs> like, there's a scene where they, they have to get a – there's a guy with a really large boot who's supposed to kick – Bart, um, and while they're escaping, like the 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 twist, the cliffhanger is that there's a koala attached to the helicopter. (laughs) It's a classic Simpsons episode. That's what it made me think of. Um, But I, I mean, it's it's one pigeon, and it can't reproduce, you know, asexually, and uh, maybe it does have some diseases. I don't know, but don't kill the pigeon. Just send him back. Uh, fuck that pigeon. Henry will take him. No, fuck that pigeon. I hate. I I like most animals. I hate pigeons. But They're I gross. You like birds. <laughs> but then again, I'm talking about New York City pigeons. Um, New York City probably. New York larger. City pigeons don't give a fuck about anyone. Like they're yeah. they're like just people. They don't move out of your way. They just look at you like what? <laughs> what do you want? Uh, there used to be a pigeon that used to hang out by my window seal, and he used to just stare at me in my room. I was just <laughs> like, "Wow, God!" That's why they introduced hawks to, to Manhattan. Peregrine like falcons. Twenty actually. twenty yeah. years ago, they introduced yeah. hawks, mm-hmm. and um, there's a lot of them there. They live up there, perched up on on uh, buildings on Central Park East. Yeah, one lives actually near my house. Oh, really? I see. I've seen its nest. The thing is fucking massive. It's pretty cool, but yeah. they could get poisoned sometimes. These these hawks, because yeah, because they're eating they don't like know. the rats that have poison in them. Yeah, they're eating things that eat poison. Um, but all right, I digress. We're not talking. Um, we got to get about into the talk today. Hand. <laughs> so yeah, so there's nothing going on politically as nothing. usual. Super uh, very 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 slow political environment as we Ex- were talking about last the week. Pigeon. Except for Joe the pigeon. <laughs> That's why we're talking about pigeons. Um, but. We wanted to um, do an episode on Sparta, and we were trying to find an interesting way to to do this because most of Spartan history is cliche at this point, at the Mm. very least. So um, there is a lot of Sparta in popular culture that is uh, uh, over-exaggerated or just completely... um, it's just a big myth and it just makes for a good story. So we were trying to find an interesting way to, to, to do a podcast on this without just doing like another episode on ancient Sparta that everyone else has, has probably done. So we decided that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of comparisons between Sparta 
at least the image of Sparta and Nazi Germany. A lot of the qualities, <laughs> a lot of the qualities that were uh, seen as positive in Spartan society were uh, either ad- either admired, and in some cases you can argue that they were adopted mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in central in Central Europe and in, in uh, Prussia and eventually Nazi Germany. Yep. So I think that's an interesting way to tackle this, and, and we're gonna. Um, Go over different analogies and, and different um, different members of the Third Reich who had you know passion, interest in, in Sparta, and just uh, you know some of the comparisons between you know Spartan uh, organizations and Nazi organizations. So um, I don't know. Why don't you jump into and just give us kind of like a brief overview of what what at the very least what is the popular history of Sparta. Right. We're not talking mm-hmm. about the real history because this is ancient history. So right. we don't really know what the real history is. We're talking about sources from Athens who are right. mainly writing about Sparta at this period. There's exactly. not Spartan written history. So we're talking about the popular history right now. Correct. Correct. One, one would um, one would be uh, uh, forgiven to think that the things that you saw in the Frank Miller uh, comic books or the you know, the movies is real, but a lot of it is super sensationalized. Uh, but e- even the stuff that's not over the top and like in the movies and stuff like that, uh, a lot of it is myth. So, you know, heavy asterisk on this, on this quote unquote Spartan history, you know, it, it's coming from third and fourth account, uh, hand accounts. So, um, Plutarch did a lot of the, uh, does a lot of the Spartan exactly. history. And exactly. He, and he we came talked about him in the, the last one. So, yeah. He, he comes around after the Roman conquest of Greece. So that's about, I th- he writes in like the first century AD. So, I mean, he's four centuries removed from the classical period in ancient Greece. Correct. Right. So uh, there's some, there's some stuff there, but let's, let's, uh, let's step aside from that. Let's just assume that, you know, that uh, what's important about the Spartan history is not necessarily how accurate the Spartan history was, but like that, that story was adopted by, you know, the, the Nazis in Germany. Um, so, we can start by talking about like the problem of Sparta or the problem in Sparta. And it starts off something like this. So Sparta is a super ambitious um, military state. And because of that um, ethos that they have, they they basically conquer its neighbors, right? In the, in the regions of uh, Messenia and Laconia. And uh, those people who lived in that region uh, would eventually become known uh, by the Spartans as the Helots. Uh, a little bit more on them later, but the basic uh, part that you need to know about them is that they worked the land for the Spartans. And the the problem uh, is that the Helots uh, actually outnumbered the Spartans um, by some estimations like 10 to 1. Uh, and so to keep them you know, under lock and key, so to speak, uh, basically every Spartan had to be a warrior. They had to be like this badass person in... Um, you know, like other Greeks, they were very used to and accustomed to uh, fighting in the phalanx formation, uh, which we've talked about uh, a bunch in the last couple of episodes. Um, and that was their primary battle tactic. And this style of warfare was extremely organized and very difficult to master. And there were some distinct differences, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the circumstances with other Greeks who used the phalanx and the Spartans. So for the other Greeks, you know, uh, people in Athens and elsewhere, you know, after they went to battle, they basically got to go home and go back to doing whatever it was that they were doing before they went to war, right? So if you were a farmer, you went back to being a farmer. If you were a, 
you know, a fucking tailor. You went back to making gloves and shit. So um, basically for Spartans, it was different because the phalanx for them was like life. They would consistently almost all the time near constant warfare, right? Because Le- Leonidas, when Leonidas asked them, I forget the other Greek city state that he's talking to. I think it was Athens. Was it Athens? It wasn't. It wasn't Athens. It wasn't Athens. And they're like, "What's your profession? What's your profession?" They're like, "I'm an artisan. Like I'm a farmer." And then they do that chant, like, "Oh, yeah, exactly." Spartans, what is your profession? Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, So this is where that's coming from. Uh, But basically, the 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 general idea, like the the non movie version of this was that they had all these enemies abroad and they had a massive population of enslaved or quasi-enslaved helots at the time and uh oppressed people like indentured servitude uh i want to call it there's some asterisks to that uh so a spartan man basically lived in this near constant warfare state at least from the accounts that we're pulling this from so to sum up the spartan situation in, in a simple way Uh, If you were like Sparta, you go and you conquer a bunch of people and you make a bunch of enemies by doing that. Uh, And because of that, you need your men to be crazy good at warfare and also uh, okay with being at war like all the time. Uh, But if your men are at war all the time, who's going to do all the farming and shit? Slaves. And how do you make sure to keep up this cycle and produce generations of the best warriors all the time? The agoge. Agogi? A gauche? The agogi. The agogi. Okay, we'll go with agogi. All right, so the agogi. So there's this dude, Lycurgus. Uh, he came up with this good idea called the agogi. He was a leader, but not like a king or anything like that. Henry, I think you know a little bit about him. What, what was his like um, historical uh, title or whatever? How did he... So um, he was kind of like the... So Lycurgus was basically like the pseudo founder of the Spartan martial system. Um, okay. That that's what he's known for. So there's really no, I don't know if there's real evidence that he even existed, but he's kind <laughs> of like maybe a King Arthur f- uh, figure. Okay. However, he's known as the guy who came into Sparta and um, brought all these virtues and created systems like a go- like the agogi that was uh, used to um, train male citizens with the virtues that would um, not only prepare them for war, but also create good Spartan citizens in general. Right. And, and, and as you point out, it, it was more than just the, you know, uh, uh, the, the training of warfare. That was a big part of it, of course, right? It was a series of trials that would like basically uh, cut out the weak uh, and cowardly Spartans. But it also was the education, right? Uh, how do we make these people stronger, smarter, things like that? Um, braver uh, was important and uh also it was like this uh, society and cultural thing it was a way to unify all the people under this like you know um military dictatorship almost you know but it wasn't a dictatorship i take that back they had a very interesting governmental style that i want to talk about towards the end but it's very interesting um so uh where were we oh yeah so the agogi the agogi uh this these spartans would would Basically, they would try to make ultimate warriors through eugenics, education, and training, right? So uh, if you were to walk through, like, uh, in the life and, uh, you know, uh, of, a, of a Spartan from birth, 
you would you would start off as a baby, right? When you were born, uh, they had this, uh, which I think I think this is a myth. I'm not even certain to be honest, but apparently the mothers, the Spartan mothers, uh, they would bathe their babies in wine, uh, and evidently, um, you know, the skin of a newborn is is apparently pretty like um, brittle and new, and it would it would burn them. It would burn the babies. It's like pouring um, rubbing alcohol on an open wound. Um, and a lot of the babies would die from this. Uh, so if they died, okay, cool, not good enough, right? So some percentage of babies were dying just because their mothers were bathing them in wine, which is already pretty brutal, just to start. Uh, and then if you survived the wine bath, uh, then this council of elders uh, would examine the baby pretty closely. And if they thought that the baby was like sickly or like weak uh, or anything like that, anything off with the baby, they would just basically throw it off a cliff. Like we saw that scene also in in the three hundred movie. Uh, this is apparently um, real. This is all weird ass eugenics of this, right? Um, and I was going to add something. So yeah. with infanticide, that's the practice of infanticide, right? Um, that was a pretty common practice throughout the ancient world. Right. I don't think that was necessarily unique to Spartan civilization. Mm-hmm. But they would certainly adopt it. And and uh, also, what's important about this particular myth? history of Sparta is that they over sensationalize the fact that the Spartans use it and under um, uh, 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 report the fact that other Spartan uh, other Greek societies were doing it as well like for Nazi Germany when we would talk about this later you know it was important that you know they were keeping up this like master race and that's why it was so important that they had to do this like baby eugenics program um, when in fact everybody was doing it so is you know it's not exclusive uh, but we'll get to that part later um, anyway, so if, if you weren't killed uh, as a baby, uh, then you would probably have a somewhat normal childhood until about the age of seven, and then you would get stolen from your mom, and you would get put into what's called a, an agala or a buai, which is basically just like a, a it translates to a herd of boys around your age. Um, and basically they do this so that they can like break the, the familial bond and create um, kind of like a special the spartan child soldier family kind of bond right and these boys they they would um, often underfeed them and uh, they got used to being hungry and uh, they were encouraged to hunt and to uh, uh, forage and steal to feed themselves so stealing apparently was not uh, totally forbidden but if you got caught you'd get your ass beat um, so it was dangerous to do it um, and then around 12 years old spartan boys would uh, go through this weird rite of passage where uh, him and the other boys in his little group, the Agela, they actually had to go and steal some honey cakes from the altar of Artemis, right? I think this is another one of those um, uh, uh, fables from, uh, what's that guy's name again? Plutarch. Plutarch, thank you. Um, he, so basically they, they were tasked to steal some honey cakes and protecting the altar where the honey cakes were or the, the older boys that already went through this, you know, s- uh, scenario, and uh, they had whips and shit. So the goal was to try to get the honey cakes, but you would almost always get beat to shit um, trying to do it. And eventually, you would succeed. Hopefully, if you didn't, you would probably be killed. I'm not sure exactly what happened to the, the kids who didn't actually get the honey cakes. Um, but it, it was such a weird um, practice that apparently Romans used to travel for hundreds of miles just to watch, just to watch this happen um play some bets or some shit like that on it anyway um after i would bet on that (laughs) 
and I got ten dollars on the on the the one with the weird hair. Um, yeah. So uh, after this like weird um, rite of passage, uh, the boys would be awarded like a cloak, um, like a like a red cape, a blood red cape called a foinikos, foinikos fucking red spartan cape that you see in the movie um and this is another interesting part of this after that he that boy who just got his cape would have to choose one of the older boys who just whipped the shit out of him um to complete his education and and the relationship that he would have with this boy was pretty interesting so the older boy uh, basically introduced him to a new clique uh, like a little warrior society uh and he would sleep and eat and practice and fight with those kids um, but also the older boy would serve as a mentor, a teacher, a comrade, and a lover. Again, we're talking about a 12-year-old boy here because, you know, you definitely want someone covering your flank in the phalanx Mambla. that was, like, statutory man, man, rape. They practice Mambla. Yeah, it's weird. It's like, man, it's, man, it's man, rape. man boy love. But that was it's, pretty much, that was it's rape. commonly, that was commonly practiced in a lot of the Greek city-states. But yeah, I mean, uh-huh. yeah, it's, our, it's rape. It's It's, 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 it's it's um, a an adult having sex with a kid and introducing them into the um, into Greek society. Uh huh. It's into rape. like intellectual <laughs> Greek and whatever martial society, and they would guide them through it. Yep. Um, rape. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Rape. It's rape. So uh, statutory rape. <laughs> uh, so at eight, at eighteen, um, they would get to rape their own little boy, <laughs> um, but. Uh, at 18, they would basically graduate uh, out of this program, and, and they'd be known as a Pydixos. Pydixos. These words are really hard to pronounce. Uh, and um, they would basically serve as like a military reservist, um, but to keep them like bloodthirsty, uh, the Spartans would uh, put them as uh, members of this like secret police called a Cryptia, uh, and they would basically be tasked with spying on the helots and occasionally murdering them. To make sure that they stayed scared, which is kind of fucked up. Um, at age twenty, uh, Spartan would be considered a man, and uh, then they could enter like full military service. Uh, they would be encouraged to make some babies and get a wife, but they would still be required to live in uh, in the barracks with uh, with their boys. Um, and it wasn't until age thirty that uh, Spartan would be released from military service, but uh, he would still serve as a reserve fighter every now and again, which was pretty much all the time. Uh, he was allowed to leave the barracks at that point, at 30, um, and he was also given a vote on the Spartan Assembly, so they couldn't vote until they were 30. Uh, and that Spartan Assembly uh, was, had the final say on all of the matters of state. Actually, this part is a little bit confusing, so this is kind of like the governmental system. Uh, so they had this, this large body called the Spartan assembly It's like every Spartan above 30. It was kind of like the house of representatives. I want to like give it kind of that kind of stature. Uh, if you were to live to 60, uh, you can get elected to, uh, be a member of the council of elders. Those were the ones that like pick the babies and see if they're good, but they would also do a bunch of other things. Like, um, they would decide on pretty much all of the measures that the assembly voted on. Um, so they had a really good degree of power because there were only 28 of them. But I guess you can think of them as kind of like the um, the Supreme Court, right? Uh, and then there was also these two kings. Uh, this one's even more confusing. So they, they served as... They had a diarchy system. Exactly. So they had like a military king and a religious king. 
Uh, so think like commander in chief style president and like a pope kind of guy, you know, something like that. Not exactly, but like close. Um, and but then above everything else, you'd have these guys called the ephors, um, which is a panel of men that was elected by the assembly of Spartans, and they would oversee the government. And I guess you can consider them kind of like the Senate, um, but that's about as close as I can get it. It was a very interesting st- like system of checks and balances. There wasn't like one governing body that like had all of the power and you know it was kind of complicated to be honest but it was interesting nonetheless i don't think most people i don't think a lot of historians even really have figured out how that government was ran or what the kind or or what were the nuances of that system or really the anomaly of of what a diarchy system was because there's really not another society that you can point to that has two kings you can't point another society in the world that has two kings Mm-hmm. Um, you could maybe point Rome, because Roman Republic had they had the emperor and the con- and the pope, right? No, they, or, no, I'm, I'm mixing before my shit. before on. the Roman Empire, they had the right. Roman they had two Roman consuls. Mm-hmm. So there'd be two consuls that would be elected, and they would um, often be at odds with each other. It was like a checks and balance system that they had with with each other, but they were right. elected officials. These were kings for life that were there, and there were two of them. So there's not another system like the Spartan system, like a diarchy yeah. system. Yeah, but it was a diarchy, but it was also like an, an electoral system, right? Because they had this whole Spartan assembly with voting privileges that um, that voted on representatives, you know, uh, called the ephors. And then there was also like this like group of old dudes <laughs> who were like judges, you know. Uh, so it, it, it's like super interesting. It, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, but I guess the kind of the point of all of this, you know, we went through the life of a Spartan and, and, you know, when you think about it, like the first half of a Spartan is training, fighting, training, fighting, training, fighting. Right. And the second half is like, you know, political, like ruling. Right. But if the entire population is doing nothing but training, fighting and ruling, you know, obviously it, it's, it's not a, not a question why they would turn to, you know, subjugation of other peoples to keep themselves fed at a bare minimum. Um, which kind of brings us to like the structure of Spartan society. And this will be super important uh, when we talk more about like the connection to the Nazis, I think. Um, but structure of Spartan society uh, was basically a three-tiered caste system. Um, and so the top of the, uh, uh, the, the class, the caste system was the Spartiates. They were the warriors. Um, they were the only ones with uh, citizenship and political power. Uh, the bottom, of course, were those slaves that I was telling you about. And kind of just above the slaves, but not quite very much above, were the helots. They, they basically worked the farm, and, and they practiced different trades, uh, and they lived mostly in the countryside. And uh, they were kind of like indentured servants. Um, what's interesting about this is that it, it let the Spartans not waste time on doing useful shit, like feeding themselves and clothing themselves, um, so that they can focus on war. Uh, but the helots actually had a couple of rights, right? Like they were, um, they were a step above the, the slaves themselves. Uh, they can earn money uh, and they can even buy their freedom, um, but they couldn't serve in the military and therefore they had no political power. And, but they were a majority of the population, which is super interesting. Um, and then there was the, the, the merchants, um, the periokoi merchants. Uh, they were like uh, incredibly necessary um, because... Uh, there was still like uh, ancient Greece. There was a lot of trade that happened, you know, um, in, in the region in general, but also specifically in, in Greece. And uh, trade had to happen. Um, 
the slaves couldn't be merchants because a merchant needs to travel and <laughs> no slave would come back. Um, and Lycurgus uh, posited that uh, Spartan warriors shouldn't be engaging in trade because it would make them soft or something like that, like pursuing wealth would make them soft. So who's going to do the trading? Uh, well, they, they put this on the, on the merchants themselves. Now, these merchant people were freemen, uh, and they served as rever- reserve forces, actually, uh, for the Spartans. Um, but they weren't considered citizens of Sparta, and they couldn't marry a Spartan. Um, but besides acting as just straight-up merchants, they were also like a buffer. So they, they were mostly located in, in the periphery of the you know, Spartan state. So there was a bunch of these semi-autonomous cities. Think of like your Hong Kongs and stuff like that. Uh, just in the outskirts of uh, the Spartan state. And uh, basically, they were like the gates that kept the helots in so that the helots couldn't leave. But more importantly, they were also the gates that kept foreign ideas out. Um, it was super important to Spartan society that, uh, that they do business because they needed, you know, they needed things. However, they really didn't want uh, outside ideas and influences to penetrate the Spartan state. Uh, and that's super, super important. You know, um, so basically these, these periokois, uh, they, they serve two roles, right? So keep the helots in and keep dangerous ideas out. And I think this uh, obviously it highlights some of the fragility, I think, of the Spartan system because the Spartans were so afraid of the helots leaving, which would basically eradicate their, their labor class. And they were also super afraid of new ideas coming in because, I mean, think about it. Um, their life from babyhood was like this perpetual brainwashing and this constant like lather, rinse, repeat of, you know, uh, indoctrination and warfare and then eventually like this political circle jerk. Uh, so outside ideas were super bad uh, for them. And so on the one hand, they were super fierce warriors and on the other hand, they were terrified of new ideas. And that is the background upon which we can start making and drawing some of these comparisons and these conclusions about how the Nazis adopted a lot of these these, these idealized and over-fantasized um, you know, stories of the Spartans. So I guess from there, you have to draw on 19th century Germany first. So want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Back in the 1900s, the 1800s and 1900s, a lot of German academics, they idolized Sparta's martial qualities. And I'm going to pull this back all the way to the early uh, 19th century. So there was this really influential book. It was called Die Dorier. Mm-hmm. It was published by <clears throat> it was published by a Prussian scholar named Karl Uhtfried Mueller, and what the book identified was the Spartans as the leaders of the Dorian race. So, what the Dorians were that they were there were four major ethnic groups in classical Greece, along with the Elians, uh, the the Achaeans, and the Ionians, and what Mueller believed is that the Dorians were actually a northern European race that invaded southern Greece. So the theory was used to explain um, the, the replacement of dialects and, and, and traditions in southern Greece in the pre-classical times. Um, because after the Dark Ages in Greece around, <clears throat> excuse me, um, around 1000 BC or so, um, there was this really big shift in the culture of, of of Greece and and the there's a change of language there's a change of dialect and there there is these kind of evolutions that eventually led to the Greece that we think of when we think of like ancient ancient Greece with the columns and the marble statues and the phalanxes and mm-hmm. all those things that come with that society so what some classical historians were theorizing was that the invasion that created that culture change from the pre-classical Greece to classical Greece, so fifth and fourth century Greece, um, was from a Northern European Aryan type race that invaded that. And that was one of the reasons why there was a kind of a stock market rise in those societies because of the, the uh, influx of Northern Europeans. Now, how true is this? I have no idea. It doesn't really sound that true. And there's probably a lot of other explanations of why there was a um, transformation in, in this in that society, but that was used as kind of a the, you can see the perceived genetic relationship between the Germans and the Spartans yep. and why that would be used. Um, that was their in route. <laughs> that was that was kind of their in. They're just looking for a way to identify with with uh, the Spartans, and they're like, oh yeah, like they're so awesome. Hey, and they're, mm-hmm. easy, they're even us. They're even Aryans. Right. Kind of like how I made the connection between me and the sea peoples. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you could be a sea person. I might be. Because they could be the, the Philistines. The Philistines. Mm-hmm. But, um, sea people. I mean, like a lot of things, this is still a mystery, but it's um, at times. Um, pseudo-history is often used 
um, a lot in a lot of these ethno-nationalist states, <coughs> especially in this region and this time of the world. Yep. Um, you see that it, pre-World War One. Right, and it wasn't it wasn't exclusively um, Germans either. Like a, a lot of um, a lot of the European states were were using uh, uh, kind of these over idealized like ancient Greek and uh, ancient Greco Roman you know um, allegory to help them with you know this or that other national identity formation. Well, when you create a nation state, you need to draw on the past. You need to create a common culture that you can export to your society and make Correct. it an actual nation state. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you need to draw on some common ancestry. The common ancestry for a place like Italy was Rome. Mm -hmm. So the fascist imagery that you know we saw and um, like the real, like Mussolini fascism. I'm not talking about like, uh, oh, you're a fascist Nazi, like in mm -hmm. modern times, fascism. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I'm talking about the actual fascism that was a political ideology that came out of Italy that drew from a lot of Roman martial societies um, to create a actual nation with one identity, with one kind of purpose. It takes that type of propagandizing to mm -hmm. um, take all these different unique cultures that are surrounding the area that may have nothing in common at all to band together and have one vision. You know, does that, does that make sense? Like that, that totally. process is necessary. So that's why you see modern nation states use the um, ancient societies that they may not even have any type of linkage to to kind of promulgate that, that vision of, uh, of uh, nationhood and camaraderie and, uh, um, and like, togetherness and collectivism that you would you need to create that monopoly on violence and have that monopoly of violence be legitimate in that area. You, you need that. So that's why these nation states are used. Um, now, after World War I, the identification of the identification with Sparta's military qualities, they intensified due to the um, I guess the the real widespread demand for the martial virtues after they had lost the war, mm -hmm. because every single nation state that engages in um, ethnic nationalism or hardcore nationalism that turns murderous, um, they usually have some type of humiliation story. Um, in the case of World War II with, with Nazi Germany, there are multiple hum humiliation stories throughout their history. Mm -hmm. um, you can point to three right off the bat. The 30-year the war. You right. also have um, the French Napoleon rolling over Prussia um, in all the German states in Central Europe. And then you have World War I, the ultimate humiliation story. Right. So, I mean, that's how you ban... That's how you kind of propagandize and create a nation using that type of um, th those type of uh, stories. Um, and you can see that in the Middle East as well. You see a lot of those humiliation stories and and um, you know the nation states that were formed in the early 20th century mm -hmm. um, after you know the Europeans left. And usually they centered around um, um, in in entropments from the West or from, from Western imperialism. Now, um, at this point, so in, after World War I, 
the Battle of Thermopylae had been translated to German, and it had already been translated to German for about 100 years. So the right. German population was really familiar with uh, with Leonidas and the Greeks. And the, and the 300 spot, this is Sparta. Yeah, they were very Schiller, familiar with that I'm not, story. I'm not mistaken. I think that was Schiller who did that. That was Schiller? Schiller, yeah, I think so. So the Nazis were able to build upon these, these uh, longstanding analogies between Sparta and Germany, even before the National Socialists took power. Right. So Hitler had been interested in Sparta and since the late 1920s, at the very least. So in his speeches, he would praise Spartan eugenics policy mm-hmm. and their selective infanticide. Mm-hmm. And again, like I just want to note, like infanticide was probably not really unique to Sparta. Most likely it was practiced in all the Greek city-states, let alone probably most of the world at that time. Mm-hmm even after ancient societies like what do you do when you have a child that has some type of birth defect right. most likely a family is going to leave them super late term abortion yeah <laughs> call no, that. uh no but but uh, i think i think um what's important about this is that is that the, the fantasy around this in, uh, eugenics or this uh, infanticide project in sparta was went beyond just like the the i guess uh i'm gonna cross a moral line here and say uh that you know there there was um it was useful to use infanticide if you saw you know children who were you know who suffered from autism or who were missing limbs or who had some certain birth defects right it was useful in those times because it it would be difficult for you to raise those children and then they would also become a permanent you know um uh, they, they, they wouldn't be able to produce in society. And so the, the pressures during ancient culture were much higher, which, which is why I think, you know, a lot of those societies would practice infanticide. But the sensationalization, however, the sensationalization of the infanticide and the eugenics projects was specifically Spartan. You know exactly. I mean? That's exactly what it is. So it's not that it was unique. It was a fact that they that you know the nazis were were so interested in this this aspect and they and they pulled that that as a mark of virtue how you know they they selectively um make population changes to create a better outcome in the a better a better racial outcome um and to, to go back um hitler had he had called Sparta the purest racial state in history. And one of the things that he admired about Sparta was the, the helot. So the helots were inferior. They were the mm-hmm. inferior population. Um, he marked that the fact that the Spartans were able to dominate a large helot population. So, I mean, we don't really know the exact ratio, like you said earlier. It could have been 1 to 10. It could have been 1 to 4. It could have been 1 to 20. Who, who knows? Let's not cross hairs on that exact numbers because the, the they were experts numbered, are, arguing, right? they, they, are, argue, are, are, are arguing on that right. stuff. And I think everyone agrees um, that they were definitely outnumbered. We just don't yeah. know how much. They were probably outnumbered. But <laughs> Sparta was a slave master society. I, I mean, at least in Western context, they were, they were a slave master society. Um, and 
that was the reason why they had time to collectivize and and concentrate on physical fitness and drilling and phalanxes and and just um doing things that were more leisure based or more um I guess personally fulfilling than just working on a farm because that's intense right. labor. Those right. are sixteen hour days a week and they'd eat up all your time. Right. Um and just take note that every Greek city state practiced slavery. Every single one of them practiced mm-hmm. slavery, along with pretty much the entire world, would practice at this, some at type this of time for sure. At this yeah. at this time, um, but again, but not the, the fantasization, like the fantasy about it, was very specifically Spartan. Yeah, the fantasy was it was it, it was directly. Um, it's like look at these Spartans, how great they were able to subjugate these, you know. Uh, thousands and thousands of helots, right? Uh, and this this worked out really well for them because if you remember, you know, in in uh, uh, the the <coughs> excuse me the Eastern Front uh, uh, during World War II, in, uh, Germany wanted to push into you know the Slavic states, you know, to create what was called the Lebensraum, right? So the area where they can the lush and fertile area where they can grow all the crops and that they can subjugate all the peoples there so that they can feed the the Greater Reich, right? And that, that was their idea. They wanted to do the same things that the, the fantasy Spartans did, right? They wanted to create a, a, a subsection of helots for themselves. Exactly. So that's, that's, I think that's a really good comparison. So um, the Germans saw the Slavics specifically as helots. Because what I mean, Hitler said it himself. You know what yeah. they wanted to do is they wanted to move into to Eastern Europe and uh, populate the place with Germans and and use either get rid of the the Slavic population or use them as really cheap shitty labor. Um, what he said about Ukraine is that you know he wanted to educate them just enough so that they could uh, that they could read the signs. That was basically it. Right, but. What what attracted the the Nazis to Sparta was you know the the, the elitist society the the racial organization along with the rigorous martial education that went along with all that and I think a key thing is since the association between the Dorians and Germany had already been made um, Sparta was seen as the perfect ancient prototype of the Nazi state that they wanted to build right. And I think it's important to take note that, um, and we talked about this in other episodes, that um, in Central Europe around this time, this is where you see the differences between, um, you know, the ethnic nationalism that's formed in Central and Eastern Europe and then the civic nationalism that's formed that in, in Western Europe and Britain and Britain and in America. I'm going to throw America in this and, and France. Where there's um, more of this kind of pseudo, um, this pseudo history going on in these in these areas, and I think it comes because there's just a lot more warfare and destruction in these states. Right. Um, now, this is where the concept of blood and soil comes comes in, and every we've heard. Tiki torches, blood and soil. (laughs) So Richard Walther Dar was 
Hitler's agriculture minister and one of the big promoters of the blood and soil ideology. And what blood and soil is, is, is just a notion that race is tied to a land. Mm. And an easy way to see if a nation subscribes to a sort of ethnic nationalism is actually to look at their immigration policies. So have you, have you ever thought about this? When a nation provides automatic or rapid citizenship to members of a diaspora of their own dominant ethnic group, isn't that a form of ethnic nationalism? Yeah, for sure. So, I, for example, um, I'm half Polish. Okay. And because my last name, Zamoda, is Polish, I would be able to get Polish citizenship if I filled out enough paperwork and like paid them $2,000 or something like that. Uh-huh. It wouldn't be that expensive overall mm-hmm. to get Polish mm-hmm. citizenship for myself because I, I would be able to trace my family roots, my family tree back to Poland uh, very easily. Like I have the history books. However, I don't speak Polish. Um, every member of my Polish side of my family is dead besides myself and my sister. And I have pretty much no culture ties to Poland either. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. still be able to easily get Polish citizenship if I, not easily, but I'd be able to get Polish citizenship relatively despite, despite all those things, relatively, right. relatively easy. It, it'd be easier for you to get Polish citizenship than for me to get Polish citizenship. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So there's a preference just based off my, my uh, last name, my, my, right. Pol- my Polish, my, my receding hairline. They'd be able to spot that and let me in. So every, hey, I mean, uh, I every Polish, too, so. <laughs> every, no, every, there's a unique trait about Polish people and I have it. It's the Polish people tend to get a receding hairline. Mm-hmm. It's a very distinct looking one. Mm-hmm. We have kind of like crow magnum looking heads. Our skulls pop out a bit. We have we have big heads, but not much is in there. Um, that's the <laughs> that's the stereotype about us. How do you stop a Polish cavalry? How you stop the carousel? <laughs> why is it, why is there no ice in Poland? Why? Because the person who invented the formula died. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before you get yourself in trouble with all the Polish people that listen to our show. I'm dude, I'm Polish. <laughs> yeah, well, not until I can, you get that I can, hey man, I can take in in the age of like super hyper uh political correctness, um I I will die on the hill of making fun of my own nationalities. <laughs> like I I bear the right to shit on Irish people and shit on Polish people. Okay. Sorry, that's just that's just the way it works. I can say as many Irish jokes about them being drunks and Polish jokes about them being Polish. Like, I'm Irish. <laughs> oh man, that's not. And that was like such a subconscious uh, flip in my head. I was gonna say Polish people being stupid, but then Polish just is mean stupid. Nie dobre, dobre, not good. Um, I'm just kidding, everyone. <laughs> I'm not that much of a self-hating Polak. <laughs> my my Irish side of my family, funny enough, are like the people who made fun of me the most for being half Polish. Really? Because my, so my you got Irish, bullied the most by much, your own family. <laughs> yeah, I'm much closer to my mom's side of the family. Mm-hmm. So, um, who's the Irish? Um, they're Irish Catholic, and they used to always all of my Polish jokes I know come from them, and they're they're hilarious. Um, 
right, but there's a lot of countries about? like in this kind of rapid citizenship there's a lot of countries that subscribe to this besides poland and um basically every country in like the balkans or eastern europe does does mm-hmm. this like armenia bulgaria estonia finland germany i think still does it greece still does this um ireland even does this israel um italy i think you can do you can get citizenship if your grand if your grandparents are from italy mm-hmm. um it's it's not hard to get like citizenship to your national country i was told so, once that i can get jordanian citizenship because my father's side of the family naturalized there after i think the second intifada but i never followed up on that i mean do you really need jordanian citizenship no what would you do that for? what would you use that for <laughs> I don't know. I'm a citizen of Jordan. You can't fuck with me. <laughs> I'd go to look Pe- at my passport. I could go to Petra. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I could still go. Let to me Petra. go to King Abdullah. He'll he'll not. He's not going to be happy about hearing this. How you treated a Jordanian citizen? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to King Abdullah. I'm a Heshemite. I'm a Heshemite. I, I could be a Heshemite, Heshemite king, king, Henry. I could be the next Heshemite king. I'm a Heshemite fucking king. Okay. Listen. You make a new state in the Middle East, I'll be that next Why do you think line. I was so anti-Bashar al-Assad? I'll, they were going to install me. I'll be the king me. of Syria. They That's were going to install me as the Syrian king. I was gonna be, that was going to be me. That's why That's we got in such heated need. debates about whether or not Bashar al-Assad you know, gassed his own people. Because I was trying to you know, propagate that. I'm name. a monarchist. <laughs> I'm, hey, guys. Secretly a monarchist. We're, I'm a monarchist, a Middle East monarchist. My plan is to take a uh, crown somewhere in the Middle East. Let's carve out a little s- chunk of land somewhere where there's nice dirt. We don't need to be on oil fields, but we want a place where we can eat at the very least slant drill into other oil fields <laughs> and steal them. Yeah, totally. So maybe someplace in southern Iraq, in like around Kuwait or southern right. Iraq. We need water we access, some, though, because I need a beach water access. Property. Yeah. I can think of a bunch of places, maybe even even northern Syria. Right. You put us up there. Yeah. We'll start a little monarchy in northern Syria, just like one small oil field up there. Mm-hmm. I think I think Danny has a claim to the throne. Yep. Um, as a Heshemite king, uh, I'm, I'm the next one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So where were we? We were talking about the all the countries um, that do this, like you know. Uh, um, ethnic nationalism yeah and just the point i was trying to make is that like it still is practice today but in, in subtle ways that you don't really think about in most in most countries um now the germans weren't really just looking at sparta in that military context um dar was also responsible for the hereditary farm law in germany um and I, i'm sure most of you guys have heard of, of this law um if you ever took like a world war ii class or anything like that um he would praise sparta's moral structure and the the division between the spartans and the helots um kind of supporting a theory that sparta was not just a state of warriors but rather than a community of like an organized agriculture society and according to dart sparta um kind of provided the paradigm for agrarian reforms in germany um since sparta had organized the land distribution through state control um and he was specifically influenced by by sparta's own inheritance laws 
So they would pass farm from one generation to the next. Um, another key thing is like another key aspect where you can draw that direct correlation is the Hitler youth, the, mm-hmm. the Adolf Hitler schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a textbook called, let, let me take that think, word. I'll, I'll take you you take this, <laughs> you take the name of this cause I, you speak German. And I, <laughs> the book is called Sparta, der Lebenskampf einer nordischen Herrensicht, uh, which roughly translates to, I looked this up. It's the, the life struggles of a Nordic, uh, ruling class. I was wondering what the name was called. Yeah. The life struggles of a Nordic Sparta. The life struggles of a Nordic ruling class. Correct. Was the name of this book. Yeah. Or ruling um, caste is an ruling is, is alternate. Um, uh, you can also use that word. So it was published by a man named Otto Vacano. I think I'm pronouncing that correct. Yeah. And that was used in the Adolf Hitler schools. And the book painted Sparta as the ideal state to, to emulate. And like uh, many Greek writers, the materials of the book, instead of teaching real history, they taught uh, moral lessons. Hmm. So a lot of the stories that came from, in our last episode, we were talking a lot about um, Greek historians, rather than you know, providing a true account of things, they were more interested um, in creating a, like an interesting story. Right. So people would actually be interested in learning about it. Like, or like the, deeper, was, the deeper meaning behind the actual history, right? Yeah, like why was it the fate? Like what was the deeper meaning behind? Like, like why that were was, the Persians repelled by the Greeks? Not... Yeah, and they weren't talking specifically about like because of the military prowess or like because of the, you know, the, the formations that they made. They were just talking about because of the, you know, the ethos and the fighting spirit of the Greeks were unsur- uh, unsur- uh, uh, matched by the Persians. Stupid shit. <laughs> it's a nice story. Exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice story is what it is. And not it's a, it's not a nice a story. Movie. It's an interesting story. And hey. If that story was like a hundred percent accurate, maybe we wouldn't know about it today. Right. When you think about it. Yeah, maybe. Like the purge the story of the 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 Battle of Plataea and the um the Battle of Thermopylae. Mm-hmm. My mom got me a book. Um, and the book is called The Ten Battles That Have uh, That Changed the World. Mm-hmm. And um, what two of the battles in the book are Thermopylae. No, I think three of them are Greek battles. And what, like was Marathon in there? Plataea and Marathon are all in this mm-hmm. book. It's like ten battles that changed the world. Mm-hmm. And you know these are these are battles that you know we we know a little bit about, but we don't know that much about. And however they are so legendary and just still they're still legendary in our own society like they're just they're legendary battles and they're used to still show virtue you know um and it's any marathon runner could tell you the story of how like oh well you know it's called a marathon because in the battle of marathon you know they'll get excited to tell you that 
whole story about the Greek messenger and right. all that. I don't I don't run marathons, so I only found out about that when I did research about the Battle of Marathon. Oh, my I have a my um my sister was a big time marathon runner. Oh, my really? girlfriend is a marathon runner too. Cool. Um my sister doesn't marathon run anymore though. She's uh retired. Um I never ran a marathon because I suck at running. Yeah, same here. Fuck that. <laughs> I'm terrible. I'm terrible at running. I once ran a 10K, though, mm. which is about six miles. I once ran and... I once ran a 10 block. How <laughs> <laughs> much? I ran a 10K, and that was hard enough. I mean, I've ran longer distances, but like in a race, and I got back, and my nipples were so chafed, my shirt was bleeding. I think that's a thing, man. You got to tape them up. Very weird. Yeah. And, I was, and my sister had already finished. Like, well, you know, she was running like five forty miles. Like, she was a, a very, very good runner, mm-hmm. and she was like laughing at me. I was like, ah ha ha ha! Look, <laughs> look at you. You're running ten minute miles, and your nipples are chafed. You, <laughs> you, look, you look like such a noob. <laughs> it was true though. Um. Okay, so so the, the the book that we were talking about, right? It it painted Sparta as this like ideal state to emulate, right? And that that's what we were talking about before. Yeah. So from the Nazi perspective, um, Lycurgus, who again is a pseudo legendary figure in Greek history, um, the, the guy who formed Sparta into or reformed Sparta into a martial society, um, the Nazis really believed his political actions. Um, not only aimed to create the martial system, but they these reforms were part of a a means to a means to an end in itself. You know, so they the the martial education would produce good citizens, but um, even if you weren't at war, they would or no, excuse me, I've had that reversed. The martial education would produce good soldiers, but even if you weren't at war, those values taught in that martial education would create overall good conforming citizens to be part of your state. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I think that's the way that the Nazis even looked at it. Like that martial education was just a good education to have. Right. Like the best, it was the best education you can get. You learn virtue, you learn toughness, you learn, you know, um, strategy how to use your brain um you learn how to be part of a unit as well Mm -hmm. and you can make the comparison that the hitler youth was um was inspired by the the spartan agogi oh yeah undoubtedly because Mm -hmm. the agogi was the education and training program that was mandated for the spartans and um you know the shit that you see in 300 that we were talking about before um there's a lot of myths surrounding the a lot of the stuff that we were talking about, but some of the claims about um, how the Agogi were acting as secret police, you can definitely draw a direct comparison to the Gestapo's or to the SS mm-hmm. as well. Um, I have a quote from because we were doing the research. One of the historians that have done has done the most work on this subject, in per in particular, was is a British scholar from the early 20th century named Arnold Toynbee, and he was writing about this in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, as you know, Hitler took power and World War II went on, and 
he was actually, uh, I guess in his own words, he said he was kind of forced to do this because the Germans were studying this themselves. So, you know, he started making these comparisons and um, he writes, the most horrifying feature of the Lycurgan system, system in non-Spartan Hellenic eyes was not its militarism, which like Prussian, military, Prussian militarism differed to a degree that hardly amounted to a difference in kind from the warlike propensities of the rest of a society from which Sparta had differentiated herself in the one case and Prussia in the other. The most appalling aspect of Spartanism was the uh, antiquous re repression of an odiously penalized subject population in the most monstrous of all Spartan institutions was a secret service that was the euphemistic official designation of an official murder gang in which adolescent Spartan boys during the last two years before their coming of age were trained to carry out a stealthy patrol of the countryside for the purpose of making away with any helots who had shown symptoms of restiveness or perhaps only even only vestiges of character and ability. So I think what he is doing right there is he's drawing the comparison of what the Gestapos were doing or what the SS were doing. For sure, the SS, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what... The brown um, shirts, right? The, what the Ajoji, the, the secret police. Right. The um, and if that's true, if, that's, if, it was that, if that was a true part, then, I mean, that's... Uh... We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. It's pretty fucked up. Yeah, it's, it's a glass of water. Yep. Um, I, I want to uh, turn back a, a little bit to you know some of the Hitler Youth School stuff because you know uh, the parallels there between you know the agogi and the, and the and the system of education for the younger spartans is pretty similar because you know these um, uh, hitler had these youth schools right these adolf hitler schools and you know there were four of these kids between 12 and 18 uh, and and they were kind of selected to go into these schools at a pretty young age um, and you know it's, it started at the hitler youth movement on the in the early side of that where uh, they would pick people, I think, in their second year of the Hitler Youth um, that could be eligible to go to one of these 10 or 12 um, uh, Hitler schools. Uh, and, you know, if you went through that selection process, they would basically make sure that you had a certain level of racial purity. Uh, and then, you know, if you pass that racial purity test, then you would go to a camp for a couple weeks to see if you're, you know, 
worthy of being part of the Adolf Hitler school. And, and the majority of the time that was spent there was based around like this physical training, right? I think the proportion was something like five to one physical training to like, you know, regular education. Uh, and each kid had to prove themselves or a beverung, uh, which um, which is what they needed to do to get that final review at the end, which would typically happen after five years around the age of 18 or so. And if you passed, you were able to go to university and join an officer corps and you know be considered for future military leadership uh, in the Third Reich. Um, but but basically like the parallels are super close, right? So it's like these super young age kid, right? take them out of there, throw them in a camp with a bunch of other kids like them, make them kind of fight it out, right? And and do a lot of heavy focus on like physical training. I'm sure, you know, the, the Nazi version of this was probably super lame in comparison to the sensationalized Spartan version, right? Uh, like they weren't starving their kids and, you know, making them steal from each other to, to eat. Uh, and they certainly, I don't think, um, I've never read anything like this before, but uh, I don't think that they were having them being whipped by the older boys or like uh, practicing, um, practicing a, 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 you know, a statutory rape or anything like that. I don't think that was going on. Maybe, uh, who knows? Tell me if you've read anything about it. I'd love to, I'd love to also read that. But um, I have not read anything about um, Hitler Youth Schools raping each other or having that kind of man boy love the closest the closest i've ever heard about this was like this like nazi idealization of the human body and they were really into doing shit naked right like they would do sport naked right they would do yeah but that's just german people in general <laughs> yeah no but like, they were like very i'm very driving fucking... by calling the autobahn but naked. i'm totally naked when, I'm doing my when i get out with my wife yeah totally we are going to go to the field and we're going to play some football and we are going to be totally naked don't worry i like it. american football but i like doing a two-hand touch and they're very <laughs> naked yeah that's like the closest you can auto <laughs> It's, it's like the closest. Grab my ball sack, Otto. <laughs> but you know, I mean, the 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 German like this this Hitler uh, education system. Obviously, you know, the Third Reich didn't last that long. It didn't last a thousand years. So you know, there were there weren't too many iterations of this. But you know, one could posit that like if if this had lasted, you know, for uh, a couple. According to CNN, longer, is going on is still going on right now in America. I'm sorry. According to CNN, it's still going on in America. Oh, the Third Reich? Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Uh, no, I, what I'm saying is that if, if it had gone on for longer, uh, yeah, or even like 100 years or something like that, then maybe they would actually refine that, you know, um, that Hitler uh, uh, youth program and the Hitler schools to be more Spartan-like, and it would be a little bit more cutthroat. I think making the comparisons is like just like, it's like Spartan light, right? Like, I think... If all this stuff that is said about Spartans was true, and the Spartans were looking at the Hitler school and the, you know, the the rearing of the Hitler youth, they would probably laugh at them and say, "Wow, you guys are fucking weak." Um, but you know, maybe if they if they got around to it for longer, they would have made it more <laughs> more aggressive. But I'm glad that they didn't have the chance. So that's that. Yeah. Um. Th- I mean, that's that's probably. The route that they would they would go in right you you suppose right i think they would um, get more spartan like you know like um, maybe they would start practicing infanticide you know as a widespread practice i mean they kind of did i mean not 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 in the not in the fan in the fantastical way that we see you know from the spartans but 
you know, they definitely uh, uh, did like forced sterilizations for people who they saw as having, you know, less than ideal genetic traits. Yeah, America used to do that too, though. Yeah, I'm not def- I'm not defending Nazis at all. Right, I'm just saying that. But the fantas- the fantastical the- version of it was specifically German, <laughs> you know, yeah, just like in, uh, in in ancient history, you know, the many other uh, cultures were practicing infanticide, but specifically the Spartans were famous for it, you know. So, um, a, a side note: when during a trial, the Nuremberg trials, when um, some some of the Nazis who were being uh, tried for you know mass extermination and stuff like that, or slaughtering people. Um, they, I forget the, exa- the exact context, but they quoted in their defense. They used uh, Buck versus Bell, mm. which is which was a Supreme Court case that ruled in favor of uh, eugenic policies mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. of a yeah. young of a young woman who was put in a, I believe she was putting in a school for man. I haven't forget the, the exact case for Buck versus Bell, but it was a young woman who was troubled. Uh, she wasn't um, she, didn't, she didn't she didn't have any like diagnosed problems, but she was put in a home. Um, back in like the 1920s, they would just lump in people with epilepsy, blind, and a lot of people with special needs now Mm -hmm. into just one place. Every spectrum of autism would all go to the same place, right? Mm -hmm. But even, but they didn't, I mean, autism wasn't really even diagnosed back then. No, but like what we would consider autism today. Yeah. Yeah. what, What we would consider, I think a lot of people who would be diagnosed with autism back then would never be diagnosed and probably just have maybe some social issues um but they wouldn't really know what what was the actual problem but even people who maybe got into a lot of trouble who came from troubled homes and acted out maybe they acted out of trauma mm-hmm. were put in these type of centers and this young woman was um eventually sterilized um eugenics was like a really popular policy yeah or very popular uh brand of science in the pseudoscience early in in early 20th century Mm -hmm. it's actually kind of disturbing how um widespread and and agreed upon eugenics was in america right um but i guess i that that's a topic for another episode probably right that is an interesting topic yep um but buck first bell is a supreme court case that if you're interested in learning more um but the it wasn't just the um, the Nazis who were making those comparisons. Like like what I said earlier, the scholars and observer uh, other other observations from other countries were coming through, and it was also coming through the, the through British society. Mm-hmm. They were making the analogies between Britain and, and uh, Sparta and Germany, and I think part of that was they could see themselves as part of that analogy as well, because the British. They were more like Athens when you think about it. Mm. Um, the, the comparisons on face value are are at the very least correct. Um, the The Athenians were a naval power. You check mm-hmm. the British were a naval power. Right. They were a democracy, um, and, and most of all, they were imperialist. So, mm-hmm. the Spartans, on the other hand, they had their diarchy, two king system. They were critics of democracy because, you know, they thought it was unstable. Um, in contrast, though, the Athenian democracy was actually much more expansive and intruded on its neighbors a lot more than Spartan did. Mm-hmm. Um, Sp- Sparta was just more concerned about 
controlling its direct kind of neighborhood sphere mm-hmm. of influence rather than um, expanding its borders all across Greece. They, they were more concerned about just their, you know, their area in southern Greece. Um, the, the reason for the Peloponnesian Wars after the Persian Wars was because um, the Peloponnesian League that was dominated by Sparta was being approached on by the Athenians, uh, like a lion system, and they wanted to nip that in the butt before they, because they, because Athens was was creating an empire within Greece. So those analogies are kind of correct when you think about it. Like the, but I guess that they fall apart because the Germans ended up they turned into um, militarized conquerors who essentially we're trying to conquer massive square mile territories right. in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess that's where that, that analogy falls apart. But um, a, another quote from to- Toynbee, um, the Nazi like public inquity was the characteristic of a Lycurgian regime that fixed the impassable gulf between Lycurgian Sparta and the rest of Hellas. But there was one difference of structure ethos and aim between Lycurgan Sparta and a national socialist Germany that was of crucial importance from the standpoint of these two inquisitious communities, the community neighbors. Hitler knew that the Third Reich must either conquer or perish while the rulers of Lycurgan Sparta were actually well aware that the conquest of an empire would spell the doom of the Lycurgan regime. The difference, the difference explains why the Third Reich's term of life was one of 12 years in contrast to Lycurgus Spartan's run of four centuries. Hmm. Maybe they should have stuck so, with the Spartan stuff and not opened up a second front. So <laughs> that's where I'm getting my point of, because right. I'm drawing a lot from Toynbee on this, um, on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of says that the whole reason why Nazi, the Nazi Germany failed is because they, turned it they maybe the nazi the nazi germany would have lasted if they didn't go on just conquering other countries and they didn't have that expansive militarist policies Mm -hmm. um that's where they failed ultimately and that was um their biggest deviation from uh, spartan society um another quote from the book um uh, can you help me with that again? Der, der, Lebenskampf. Le- der, der Lebenskampf einer nordischen Herrenschicht. Le- it's a tough one, man. It's, that's not an easy one. <laughs> Sparta, the northern, the Nordic caste system. The the life struggles of a Nordic uh, uh, ruling class or ruling caste. So here's a quote. Without the spirit of Sparta, which inflamed the armies of the Greeks, without the art of war and the courage of Sparta, the Greeks themselves would have lost their homeland. The death of Leonidas and his 300 Spartans became an internal example of military discipline and patriotic duty. Duty. (laughs) Duty. So um, where I'm drawing in right now is that Nazi propaganda used the battle of Thermopylae and not only did they use it to uh to uh get young men in the fighting spirits oh <laughs> be like Leonidas with his chiseled abs 
they used it to actually justify their their losses. Mm-hmm. So they you see this comparison between Thermopylae and the Battle of Stalingrad, and um, there was a direct parallel drawn between the Sixth Army that was annihilated in, in Stalingrad mm-hmm. and the 300 Spartans who were killed in you know this glorious last stand fighting the horde of slaves right uh, Xerxes um, and here's a quote from Herman Goring the commander of the Luftwaffe, the Luftwaffe um, addressing the 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 air the mil- the German Air Force um, addressing the military my soldiers, most of you will have heard of a similar example from the great and formidable history of Europe. Even though at the time the numbers involved were small, ultimately there is no difference in the deeds as such. Two and a half thousand years ago, an infinitely brave and daring man stood in a narrow pass in Greece with 300 of his men. Leonidas stood with his 300 Spartans, men from a race famed for its courageous and daring, an overwhelming majority even ever renewed, constantly engaged this small troop. The heavens darkened from the number of arrows which were shot. Then, too, it was an onslaught of hordes which crushed the Aryan men here. A formidable number of warriors were at Xerxes' disposal, but the 300 men did not yield or tremble. They fought and fought a futile battle, yet what, yet one far from futile in its significance. <sighs> that comparison is so lame. It's like they just like have this convenient story where it's like, you know, uh, Herodotus or, or um, uh, who, who who I keep forgetting this guy's name again. Help me out here. Plutarch. Plutarch. Thank you. Like Plutarch, like overly, uh, uh, you know, uh, glorified this loss that the Spartans had. And then now the Nazis have this like neat, like little allegory to say yeah we lost and we lost pretty fucking bad but you know what? yeah plutarch so should have should have saw that down the road yeah. oh hopefully like, like helping to enable, enable some losers you know like like that's that's what he did he's enabling losers by by making this story so awesome but he's also inspiring hollywood hits yeah that's true that's true come on man when 300 came out was that 2006 who knows that was a long time ago. Hey, say what you want. That I love that has, movie. It was so entertaining. Was incredibly entertaining. Mm-hmm. It was very ridiculous, but incredibly entertaining. Um, another so, uh, Goring he also twists a famous uh, Greek epigram for the soldiers killed at Thermopylae. So, um, it, it's the real version is strange, or the Greek version is. Stranger, when you reach Sparta, tell them that you have seen us lying here as a law commanded. And he twisted that around. When you reach Germany, tell them that you have seen us fighting at Stalingrad as the law, the law of the safety of our people, commanded us. Also lame. <laughs> uh, goring. Well, I guess when you have such a huge loss like in Stalingrad... Um, you got to spin it somehow. You know? I mean, there's... It's the turning point of World War II. It's it's the um, period in in forty three. That's when the Soviets, after the Battle of Stalingrad, the Soviets went on defense on the offensive and eventually conquered Germany and sacked Berlin and a lot of parts of Eastern Germany. And 
they raped and murdered and killed a lot of people on their way to Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see it, what's hard to do is paint the picture that this was, you know, in a, off uh, a defensive struggle because the Spartans were at least defending a, a pass, uh, a mountain pass, and there was a Persian invading force there. Right. Um, they were confronting. They were confronting some uh, a force that was not native to the, their land. In the German case, in Sparta, they're the invading force. They're there. I mean, I don't know the. I don't. I'm not great with like World War II battle history or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know a lot of it had to do the Battle of Stalingrad. I know a lot of it was centered around um, controlling southern oil fields and that that's where the soviet oil fields were located around in southern russia and the right. caucasus and areas like that mm-hmm. um so i know a lot of it was to, to just have that strategic advantage because germany ends up losing world war ii or not the reason but one of the spoiler disadvantages, alert <laughs> one of the yes yeah, germany loses world war ii spoiler <laughs> alert um we we ended up nuking berlin before they can nuke us it was really crazy <laughs> So um, one of the big reasons why they lost is is they were running out of oil. Mm. Like they they just didn't have the energy capabilities to keep up with with the United States or the Soviet Union. Right, and their no- um, their North African escapades weren't going so well either. Yeah, and, and I mean there wasn't even really major. The, the, their oil was all coming from Romania, mm-hmm. and. As soon as the U.S. got in range, as soon as the Allied got in, um, the Allied forces got in range, they would bomb the shit out of those fucking <laughs> Romanian yeah. oil fields. Yeah. And not only, they were suicide missions. Like they would just, these were really dangerous missions. Like we're talking about like a sixty percent casualty rate. Mm-hmm. The air raids that were going over these, um, these German oil fields in uh, during World War Two. Mm-hmm. So, um, they. Germans, Germany ends up basically running out of gas during their their great counteroffensive during the Battle of the Bulge on their way to to kind of split the U.S. and British forces and lock the British down into kind of they, they're planning the Battle of the the during the Battle of the Bulge and their their counteroffensive was to split the U.S. and the British forces into two and annihilate the British forces in the south and hold up the northern the, the US forces in kind of a stalemate in the north in Belgium and then they were gonna take that army and they were gonna swing it back into the Soviet Union to help on the, the real war where, you know, mm-hmm. get out because that the Western Front in World War Two was kind of a freak sideshow for the Germans. Um but um I guess that's a kind of a off topic thing. Um but to to kind of further make the point with the Battle of Thermopylae uh, being this kind of uh, narrative to control the loss, the, this just huge epic loss, like probably the worst loss in military history. Yeah. It's got to be up there. It's like the most important military loss, the worst. It's the biggest battle ever. Mm-hmm. There's no bigger battle ever. The Battle of Stalingrad. Yeah. And then you throw in. Yeah. It's the biggest battle. Except Capital Raid Part 2. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's not go there yet. It's not the end of the show yet. <laughs> so there's a this, Stalingrad is the greatest battle in, in all of human history, along with, you know, um, the Battle of the Psalms and the Battle for Die in World War I. Um, 
but I mean the Germans were on the losing end of of Stalingrad in, in a very humiliating way. Um, they had even you have to to prime up your young men to still want to fight. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Right. So you got to kind of real reach. You got to really reach into the propaganda. Um, and it's funny because at the end, by the end of 1943, there was a German aviation unit that was inspired by Leonidas. It was uh, called the Leonidas Staffel. Mm-hmm. And the name was chosen because the pilots in the squadron were essentially going to conduct suicide missions. Right. And um, I mean, these, these planes, I don't think, were really used that much. You know, the German version of kamikazes, but I think that they were used towards the end of the war in 1945 when the Soviets finally were marching into Berlin. Um, but yeah, that's uh, kind of where these analogies uh, cross, you know, through their propaganda, yep. the school systems, their land reforms, their racial, ethnic um, vision, their kind of uh, their... Uh, projection of racial purity on the Spartans. Um, there's a lot of interesting parallels or I don't know what's more interesting, the actual parallels or more so the projection of these of their own values on this ancient society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now after talking about that, yeah. I just kind of that kind of was clicked in my head. I think it was more of uh, German nationalist projections of their own values onto this ancient society for them to justify a lot of the evil things that they were doing. Right. Right. I mean, obviously this is like a a cursory look there. We could go on and on and on about the the many, many parallels because, you know, these, these, these Nazis were what, what you could call like just Spartan, like obsessed right like it was very much a part of their ethos even though you know they they you know were their own race and they were on their their own thing and they were very very much about germany it's it's kind of funny to see how much they plagiarized you know from from the spartan ideals and and this is just like a cursory look at it and hopefully that's you know it was an interesting topic for you guys and and you do some more research and you find some some more things um i actually really enjoyed this henry i I thought this was like uh, like a fun way to talk about something that was going to get that was that has been played out the Spartans. Um, yeah, I agree, and I think one more point I want to add to um, this conversation. So this is what the German obsession with the Spartans has actually had actually retarded the research. I don't mean that in the offensive way, in pejorative way, like right. slowed down the research right. in in Spartan like. Uh, archaeological digs and things like in field surveys and things like that mm-hmm. um the reason being is because it was so associated with with nazism people are like ah, i don't want to f- i'll go study thebes or something <laughs> yeah. like uh, i'm gonna stick i'm sticking my nose out of this one yeah so a lot of the research on sparta is like kind of dynamic at this point um meaning when that i guess the best way to explain it is that most likely the history that a kid is learning in high school is probably like out of date at this point with all the research that's going on there now. Mm-hmm. So there's like a whole new perspective, these, all these new, new perspectives stuff, that are coming yeah. out on it. And 
uh, the fact that the Nazi were obsessed with it and you know used it so much within their propaganda is one of the reasons why um, it became a bit of a taboo uh, topic um, because I guess other nations were also kind of uh, projecting ideals on Greek city-states and it became pretty sour um, but yeah it's a uh, Spartan history is interesting and it's kind of unfolding right now if you look at the if you look at the research um, <clears throat> Um, so I'll, I'll post some sources and some papers in here for you guys to look at, uh, with some authors who are doing the research, if you're interested in diving deeper into it. Um, but yeah, this was a great topic to do it. I think this was an interesting way to kind of tackle, um, again, like you said, something that's been like something that's in popular history. So everyone's going to want to take a stab and put in their own narrative either on it or, um, or kind of reiterating the story of 300 and the epic glory that happened. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You want to end this thing? Hell yeah. All right. All right. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of bro history. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure that you rate and review the podcast. Um, give it a five star review. I'm sure we pissed off some people with our last rant, but that's fine. <laughs> This goes with it. This process of elimination right. when it comes to these podcasts. You can consider this um, like the uh, the selection process for the Spartan babies. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> if you've made it this um, far, <laughs> you have to give this us This podcast a- is not only a history podcast. We do politics and foreign policy mostly. Um, so be prepared for controversial takes and arguments. Um, but yeah, make sure you rate and review the podcast. It's the number one way to help us grow. You can also support us on Patreon at Patreon at Bro History. Um, and just keep on sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Um, I'm sure they'll get a kick out of it too. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Unless you have anything else to add. No way. All right. Peace, everybody. All right. Peace. feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.